The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. All right, so Matthew chapter 4, definitely, definitely a pleasure and an honor to be here. Um, Yeah, so we're going to start just by reading through this passage and kind of get into a discussion about what Jesus has for us. Um, I cannot, again, I can't express enough, uh, it, it is just a pleasure and an honor to be up here. Matt was asking me as I walked in this morning um, if I was nervous. Not, not entirely, no, not too bad. And then he said, I, you strike me as someone who over-prepares. I said, yeah, at the last minute, I do over-prepare. Um, that being said, he's going to come and lead another song. I'm going to go study for 15 more minutes, and then we'll, we'll dig in. Matthew chapter 4, let's just start with verse 1. Um, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall, not, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now, when he had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, territory of Zebulun, and I'm sorry, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for, who's, for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on, light, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for your love for us, your concern for us, your care for us. We thank you, Lord, that we don't have a high priest who is unfamiliar with the things that we go through, but is in every way tempted as we are. We thank you that Jesus, um, our brother, not only came to live um, a perfect life and die for us, but he came to live a perfect life in which he experienced the things that we experience, the struggles that we go through. God, I do pray that you'd speak to us through your word. Lord, that um, the words that I say would just be what you have for us today, that you'd speak to my heart even this morning. I pray all these things in your name. Amen. So in this passage, we kind of see the main point um, that I'm going to kind of present here. Because of his identity with the Father, Jesus resisted temptation. That's the whole idea behind this passage, that Jesus identifies with the Father, and because he's able to do that, he resists temptation. And from that, we can see that because Jesus resisted temptation, we can trust that Jesus has resisted sin for us. We can trust that Jesus has resisted sin for us. I know that last week I wasn't here, and I actually haven't had an opportunity to listen to the sermon yet, unfortunately, but Jacob preached on baptism. Um, I'm going to step back into that for like 15 seconds and just say that, In that baptism, Jesus identifies 
himself with us in judgment by stepping into the water. God identifies with his son and says, even as you are identifying yourself with these sinners, I am willing to say that I am still extremely pleased in what you're doing. So he's stepping into a relationship, he's stepping into identification with people who are dirty, with people who are awful, with people who are wretched, and who deserve nothing more than death, and God looks down and says, I'm well pleased with what you're identifying with. I'm well pleased with you for identifying with that. And to me, that just kind of screams the gospel into my ear, because if God is willing to say that to his son, he's willing to say that to me because of his son. Then the spirit leads him into the wilderness to be tempted. And I kind of let my imagination run a little wild at this point. Um, I just kind of, just the way it reads, uh, chapter three ends and the word then starts off the passage. To me, it sounds immediate. So I just see Jesus kind of getting up and walking out of the water and just walking straight by the whole crowd that's just standing there watching him go through this whole thing. They just seen God speak and this dove ascend, drops on Jesus and the Holy Spirit fills him. And he's kind of like takes off into the wilderness, maybe muttering something about smashing some snake's head into the ground as he walks by. And he just takes off into the wilderness, gone. Um, And as he walks past the crowd, and they're seeing him walk off, they don't really know it, but he's about to enter into probably one of the most uncomfortable situations in my human mind that has ever been presented in scripture. Um, And I mean physically uncomfortable. Uh, He begins this little journey by not eating for 40 days, just hiding in the wilderness, not eating for 40 days or 40 nights, fasting. And and then at the end of those 40 days, instead of going and gorging himself, which I would have done on like day one, um, he gets this little encounter with Satan. So the most powerful human being, or human being, the most powerful force on earth other than the person that is himself, steps up to him and says, we're going to have a little bit of a conversation. And, and the conversation that ensues, <laughs> I think, um, I don't know. I'm, I'm just, I'm trying to imagine being that hungry <laughs> and then having this talk. And, it, and it is, uh, it's enough to make me nervous, Matt, actually. Um, I can't really grasp, like trying to, even studying it, just trying to wrap my mind around what that feels like. We all know how temptation feels. Every single one of us understands what temptation's like. We, we, we can imagine the human feelings that Jesus has just being tempted, never mind being that hungry, just being tempted, knowing what you're supposed to do, and then kind of having the presentation of a desire to do something completely different. Um, I don't have slides, and we're not going to watch a movie, so that's not that big of a deal. (laughs) But we do. We understand what it feels like to know in our minds what we're supposed to be doing and then be presented with something that kind of seems a lot more satisfying, in the moment anyways. Uh, Temptation doesn't escape any of us. I I did pull some stats together, and I'm not going to read a lot of them. But regarding temptation, the Barnell Research Group... uh, has found that 60% of Americans admit to being tempted to procrastinate and worry. 55% say they are tempted to overeat. 44% they claim a temptation to spend too much money. 41% own up to being tempted by laziness. Um, I think those are all things we face. 44% of Americans are tempted to spend too much time on media, while 11% 
admit a temptation to go off on someone via text or email according to the study. That's easy. It also goes into um, statistics about um, more lustful t temptations. I'm just going to go ahead and say 24% admitted to viewing pornography. Um, family Care has put out a research that uh, that number is a lot larger based on just clicks on the internet and age groups of who's looking at pornography. So I just came to the conclusion that about 50% are tempted to lie about their temptations. <laughs> so temptation's real. Uh, the sheer force of temptation should remind us that the universe is demon-haunted. Um, and I'm not going to say that to say that every single temptation that we go to is the result of some massive demon force working against you. Uh, I think there's, there's things that tempt us outside of that, but the, the universe is demon-haunted. I think every temptation we, we come in touch with has the devil's hand on it in some way, shape, or form, whether that is something that we're struggling with internally, and so it's our own lustful desires um, that are carried forward from our father Adam, where de the devil touched it there, or if it's the world around us that the devil's touched, or if we're literally just facing up against a demon. Um, I don't think there's many people in here that are going to have a face-to-face -face like Jesus is having, but there's people who, who feel and face demonic temptation, demonic powers. And we need to know that when these things happen, the devil kind of already has our ticket punched. He, he knows exactly, as human beings, what we struggle with. Um, because they don't really change from the beginning of human time to now. It's just these, these few things that he can kind of get in there, and it's what he's about to have a conversation about. But we also need to remember that there's only one person who's ever wrestled with demons and succeeded. And this is his story, and it's a story that brings us extreme hope. Jesus, prior to being tempted, again, spends 40 days fasting in the wilderness. The devil seizes the opportunity to kind of take this appearingly or seemingly weak victim and say, my turn. You know, you, you've gone through 40 days of extreme hunger. I'm going to get you now. Uh, I've done this a few times before. It's worked every time. You're up. But we need to remember that this isn't just the devil approaching Jesus randomly. Jesus has been led by the Spirit after being filled with the Spirit into this situation. And so we, we kind of run into this paradigm of what is temptation versus what is being tried. Jesus is going through both of these things. He's being tried by God uh, for his ministry and he's being tempted by the devil. Trying is something that a sovereign God does for good. Temptation is something that the subordinate to that sovereign God, the devil, with his permission, does for evil. And if you just think back to, if you know the story of Job, you know, Job had to go to God to get permission, or sorry, the devil had to go to God to get permission to tempt Job and do things to Job. There's, there's, a, there's really in temptation, those two things working together in a way. And, and I think it's comforting to know that in our temptations, that God is at work, that God is doing something, that he's trying us, he's refining us, he's purifying us through these. Trying is for our good and the work of God. And it's interesting to note also that the things that Jesus is going to bring before Jesus, he also has brought before Adam and Eve, he's brought before Israel, in fact, what Jesus responds to, or how Jesus responds to the devil, rather, um, are direct quotations of Moses' response to Israel in Deuteronomy, 
when they fail their temptations. So Israel fails. Moses comes and says, should have done this. Devil comes to Jesus. Jesus just kind of says it because he's Jesus. <laughs> Direct quotations from what Moses said. I think I, it's a little comforting to know that in our temptation, the devil's really just trying the same old tricks. He, he's trying to get us with the same old things. And so we can be ready. God is preparing us through the temptation of Jesus to be tempted. And we get to trust that we can face temptation because Jesus has already faced it for us. Interesting again to note is, is the phrase that Satan repeats over and again. If you are the son of God. If you are the son of God. If you are the son of God. It's showing his hand. He's directly attacking who Jesus is, what his identity is, his identity with the father, his identity as a son. And he's trying to offset that. He's trying to bring it into question. And the first thing he does to kind of offset that relationship, to put a question in Jesus' mind about what his relationship with God the Father is, is he, he puts into his mind the question of provision. The question of provision. So two through four here, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you were the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. We can resist sin because Jesus has resisted sin for us, and we resist on the basis of trusting the Father to provide for us. We can trust the Father to provide for us. It, it, it almost seems like too obvious to use this temptation first. Jesus is starving, literally. Um, I would say... At least in my mind, he's starving. I don't think he actually was. I think supernaturally, God has done something to lay aside his need for hunger. Um, that being said, I don't recommend fasting for 40 days. Recommend fasting 40 days a bit much. You know, at least the first time around. I don't know how many times it would take to get to that point. But is there something wrong with not having eaten for 40 days, with going and making yourself some bread? No, I don't think that's what's in question here. This isn't a passage about gluttony. Um, Jesus, is not or God, Jesus is not being attacked by the devil um, to overeat, to gorge himself. He's, he's being attacked to meet a basic need. A basic need, which makes you wonder, at least it made me wonder, and it should make us wonder, what on earth is going on? Like, why is this a problem? Hey, Jesus, you haven't eaten for 40 days. How about a slice of bread? It doesn't seem like there's too much to that temptation. But as it sets it up for the rest of the passage, we're not going to find the goal of Satan's temptations in what Satan is saying. We're going to find the goal in how Jesus responds to them. Jesus' response, in quoting Moses, is going to tell us exactly what the devil's trying to do. Exactly what the devil's trying to do. From the responses, we see that Jesus is winning a battle that mankind has lost since the beginning of the earth. Since the creation of mankind, we have lost this battle. It's the same temptations that Adam and Eve failed to resist and that Israel fell to. <laughs> 
And if you can think back to Israel for a second, just briefly, um, the, the first response that comes up, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. If you remember Israel wandering in the wilderness for 40 years at that point, God providing for them food because they didn't have any, and then them turning around and complaining about this miraculous food that's falling from the sky. Well, we want some meat. I think Ryan even said this, a completely different conversation, kind of kicked in yesterday because he had said it, it was funny, um, during our book study. But how foolish that is to say, you, you know, this miracle's not enough, give me another. Um, so the temptation that Jesus is facing, based on his answer, tells us that what the devil is doing is not simply trying to get him to eat bread. He's trying to get him to provide for himself in a way that is outside the scope of what God is trying to do at that point. It's outside the scope of what God has brought Jesus to the wilderness for. He's trying to get him to question the loving care of his father in providing for his needs. It's not about a slice of bread. If it was, I think we'd have a fairly easy conversation ahead of Jesus at this point. He's calling into question whether or not God actually cares for his needs. And, and the same thing happens to us on, a, on such a regular basis, I think. That we get approached with this idea that we need something that we don't have uh, instead of trusting God to provide it, instead of maybe even budgeting for it or saving for it, we just kind of spring on it, no thought behind it. Um, we, even worse, beyond that, because it seems like a fairly small thing, we just get into these positions, we are questioning whether or not God actually cares about us, enough to provide for us. I, I know there's, there's situations where we get into losing jobs or, um, you know, unaccounted un, un for expenses come up, catastrophes happen. And I think our first initial reaction is to say, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And I would just say that from this passage, I think the first thing we can do is just trust that God loves us enough to provide for us. I, I can just kind of, as a personal example of this, um, and it's a small thing, I think, Oh, it's big to me. It's a small thing. Um, and Alex is watching, so she can forgive me for, for saying this. She's probably going to embarrass her just a little bit. But I would say that God supernaturally provided for my relationship with Alex. It just, I, I believe that wholeheartedly. Um, before her, uh, before she came into my life, I would, I would even go to say that that was not something I trusted God to provide for very well. Um, there were many circumstances prior to my relationship with her that I really tried to force my hand in there to make sure that I got what I wanted. That I was satisfied with the relationships in my life. And it, and it wasn't too long before I met her. And again, I, I think talking with Jacob, we, we discussed whether or not this is kind of, it's not a formula. It's not, it's not this like magic code to get what you want from God. So please don't write it down like that. It wasn't too long before meeting her that I just came to the realization that like, you know, if this is my life and it's just me, I think I'll be okay. 
I think I will. I may not like it at first, but it, you know, I'll grow used to it. It might be all right. And then poof, Alex. Sweet. Yeah. So I, this doesn't go to say that I, I don't, it's not the way it normally works with me in trusting God for provision. This was definitely outside the scope of how Jay normally treats these situations. And I think the circumstances leading up to my relationship with her show that, yeah, you're kind of bad at this. One for whatever is not all that great of a, of a record when it comes to trusting God for provision. But it shows us, it teaches me that God can and will and is far more capable of providing for my needs, of providing for my satisfaction, of providing for my happiness than any way that I could force with my hand. And I think we're tempted to surrender that truth for immediate satisfaction. And if Jesus had done that, it's not that he's eating bread. It's that he's making bread an idol. He's making bread a priority over his father. And we fail to trust God for the basic needs in our life. We rob him of his fatherhood. We rob him of his desire to father us. We can trust God to provide for us. We can resist temptation of immediate satisfaction because Jesus resisted this for us. And God wants to satisfy us with himself. Verses five through seven. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord, your God, to the test. The devil again makes an assault on the sonship of God. I'm sorry, the sonship of Christ and the fatherhood of God. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down. What the devil's doing here, um, and I would say as a small way of application, just a small kind of like side note in this passage, we do get that it is important to memorize scripture. Um, I've heard the passage preached before where that was kind of like what it was all about. I don't necessarily feel that way. Um, but we, there, there is the application to memorize scripture, to know God's word. It's God's word that the devil is using. It's promised to be a sword for us. So that is an application of this, to, to know God's word. And I would say it's even more importantly so proven in this section of the passage because the devil's misquoting scripture. He's saying that, isn't it written? Isn't it said? By the way, didn't he do that with Eve? Isn't it written? Isn't it said? That if, if, if you, you know, throw yourself off this cliff, he's going to command the angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And what he's doing here, in Jesus' response, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test, is again quoting Moses, speaking to Israel after they failed at this temptation. Um, the place was called Massa, which was literally, I think, like 
thirsty or something. I forget exactly what it means. Didn't write it down. It, it's something along the lines of something uncomfortable. Um, and where, where they were is they were going through the wilderness, pretty thirsty, and they demanded that God provide for them this water in the same supernatural way that he had provided the food. Basically, we want to see it come out of a rock. <laughs> that was, that's what they asked for. They demanded the sign from God. And it was a failed temptation. And Moses responds to Israel the way that Jesus responds to Satan. Do not put God to the test. Don't do it. Just off limits. No testing God. Again, it's an assault on the fatherhood of God. As much as it's an assault on the sonship of Christ, he wants to be our father. He wants to provide for us. He wants to protect us, which is what this portion is all about. Come on, Jesus, don't you think God's going to protect you? Protect you? I mean, it seems a little silly. <laughs> no one's getting me up to the side of a cliff and saying, hey, Jay, you know, jump off, man. God will protect you. It's all good. It's not happening. I'm probably not going to the top of a mountain with that person, ever. I don't trust that they want to see a miracle any less than I do, and I don't trust that they're not going to make me the source of that miracle. But he's misquoting scripture, and Jesus responds, do not test God. He's wanting Jesus to test God's love. He's wanting to do Jesus to test God's protection. And isn't it true of us that we get kind of addicted to these major signs from God, these major thoughts or, or just experiences or even miracles, which we totally believe is going to, will happen, do happen, still happen. We pray to see them. We pray to see God do big things. But we don't rely on them as the ordinary ins and outs of days. There are ordinary means of grace that are extraordinary miracles every single day in our life. Uh, the Spurgeon quote comes to mind that the sovereignty of God is the pillow on which I rest my head. Every time I close my eyes to sleep, I'm relying on a miracle of God to get me to the next morning. I'm sleeping. There's no protection for me, especially the way I sleep. I'm relying on God to protect me. These are, I get in my car, I'm relying on God to protect me. And I'm not saying that like, this is the thought process Jay has. I'm not that pious to like, okay, God, here we go. But every time you step into a street, you, are, you have to rely on God to protect you. There's no promise that that next step isn't your last. And these are the ordinary miracles that God does. These are the ordinary things that happen that are really extraordinary things every single day of our lives. But addictions to signs Addiction to signs is not easy to overcome. We get so wrapped up in just seeing him do great things that we forget he's done great things. We don't need to step out in front of cars. We don't need to fling ourselves off buildings. We don't need to handle snakes, pass poison. We don't need to slip Jacob milk to know that God is protecting us. The interesting thing, I think, about Satan's sermon, the, the thing that like, really kind of is like, ooh, hey, is that he kind of stops just short of where it gets super interesting in Psalms 91, which is what he's misquoting. And that is the promise that who is being spoken about in Psalm 91 will crush the head of a serpent and conquer a lion. But Satan's not bringing that up. Yeah, God will protect you if you throw yourself off this cliff. He's also going to protect you from me. Um, ultimately, you have the victory. As you already know, 
but I'm not going to bring that point up. The gospel is that God, by Jesus, will, through extraordinary means, reverse the damage done to the original creation by sin and Satan. And he's not going to do it by jumping off the temple. I said cliff several times. It's the temple he's standing on. I'm sorry. He does it by smashing Satan's head into the ground, ultimately. But it's not a conversation Satan wants to have. We can trust God to protect us and know that God has done extraordinary things in our lives, even through ordinary events. Um, I didn't get permission for this. I don't even have it in my, my notes, but it comes to mind, so I'm going to use it, and I'm going to trust that Matt and Rachel's friendship with me is strong enough to handle this. But this is just something that, I, I don't know, it's coming across my mind right now. I can't say enough of how impressive it is, and they wouldn't want me to say this, so don't go like awe and Google over them after this, that they would go to Thailand because the Spirit of God is leading them to Thailand, and we're really excited that they get to go again to visit, but for two years and live there to work with people who are caught in human trafficking. That took planning, that took preparation, that took time, that took expertise. On the reverse side of that, if they had said, hey, do you want to help people in human trafficking? And Matt's like, yeah, let's do it. And they just get on a plane and they fly to Thailand randomly with no association, no preparation, no gifts, nothing. And they just start walking into places and trying to rescue people. They don't get to assume God protects them in those types of situations. Do you kind of see the contrast there? They got to go and live in Thailand for two years, trusting God would protect them because the spirit led them to do that. And because preparation happened and they thought through it, they prayed through it, they went knowing that's what God had for them. They didn't just get on a plane randomly and walk around the streets of Thailand doing really stupid things. Does that create the difference in what's going on in your mind? We don't get to test God. (laughs) What we do get to do is resist the temptation to test God because we can trust that Jesus has already resisted the sin for us. And we do get to trust that God will protect us and that God does protect us and that God does provide for us and that God does love us. Verses eight through 11. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. So Jesus again gets transformed or transposed into this situation where he's now standing on top of a very high mountain. Um, don't really know if this is like a physical thing or if this is just something that's happening in his mind that the devil's putting him through by the allowance of God. If he's just seeing it, but he's essentially able to see every kingdom on earth and the power and glory of all of those kingdoms. And the devil says, if you just you know kneel down, worship me a little bit, all of it's yours. All of it's yours. I, I get the sense, anyways, that. At this point, Satan's just coming across a little desperate. Um, But I also get the sense that he was super 
overconfidently stepped into this situation to begin with. It worked for Adam. It worked for Israel. This is a piece of cake. Sorry, he's the son of God. (laughs) He might be human or is human, but he's also the son of God. And what he's doing here is he's coming before the creator and the sustainer in the universe. Everything exists because of him. Everything exists through him. Everything is sustained by him. And he says to him, God of the universe, if you bow down before me, I will give you this. And to me, it's a bit like taking the president to your local like sewage department and be like, I think you can manage this. Like, this is already God's. This is already Jesus's in God because he identifies with God as a son. He is God. And the devil says, come on, man, just bend the knee a little bit. It's all right. I know you want this. And what we're coming into here is a question of vindication. Essentially what, what Satan is saying to the devil is that people, or sorry, Satan is saying to the devil, Satan is saying to Jesus that people don't know who you are, man. You just went into the water and identified with a bunch of dirty, rotten people. If you just kind of bend your knee a little bit, I'll make sure they know you're in charge. Your name is cleared. Your name is made great. I will present you as ruler of everything you can see. It's a valid temptation for any human. Don't we want people to know who we are? Don't we want our names to be cleared when they're slandered? Don't we want these things? Don't we, don't we want our name to be good? Um, at work, they always talk about our brand. Present your brand well. Make sure people know your brand because when they see you, that's what they think of. We, we want that. We want that name. We want people to recognize the good things about us. We do not want them to recognize the bad things about us. We definitely don't want them to recognize bad things about us that may not be true. Jesus is being told, you know what you're here for. You know what you're going to have to go through. You know that's really not supposed to be on you. If you're being honest, this is like something Adam should have taken care of and I already you know, messed that up. I can give you all of this without any of that. Without any of that. We all want vindication. We don't want people to think things of us that are not true. We don't want our name dragged through the mud. And of course, there's times where self-defense or even, even reputation it becomes good and necessary. I think, I think there's situations even in our church where people have had to present themselves honestly to say, listen, I'm capable of this situation. I'm capable of this. We've prayed for those situations before as a church family together. We face them all the time. We, we have to trust that when our name is dragged through the mud, when we're, when we're brought to situations where um, people don't know things that maybe they should or think things that they shouldn't. That we trust that God and our identity in him is what, what reigns and rules in all of that. And that's, that's kind of sub-temptation, I think, in my life anyways, to the temptation of making people know 
sure how, how good I actually am, forget not knowing how good, I, good I'm not. Well, you do good things. And we talked about, again, we talked about this in men's Bible study yesterday. You do good things, the temptation that people know you did those good things is constantly there. It's even, even a stain based on sin on the things we can do for the Lord because, because we have this constant temptation that I did this, but do people know I did this? Do they know how holy I am? Do they know how righteous I am? Do they know how much I love the church? Do they know how much I love God? God, if, if I keep serving in ways that nobody's seeing and nobody's watching, what, what, what good is that? It's a question of trusting God versus robbing him of his desire to father us. There's plenty of ways to provide for your family, become famous, live your dreams that are not necessary in accordance with scripture and holy living. There's lots of choices we could make to just get our name out there. Do we circumvent the sovereignty of God by doubting that he will make good on his promises to us? Life doesn't always go as good as we want, so we try to make our own way to where we think we should be. Those attempts don't end well. I've done it, <laughs> even in my short life, way too many times. They don't end in vindication. They often end in embarrassment. God does have a plan for his children, each of them, including all of us. He has a path. He has a plan. Even when our flesh doesn't want to admit to it, even when, we do, even when we look at our situation and say, this is not what I want, he does have a plan. He does have a purpose, good and bad. He has a purpose. He has a plan. And I think ultimately what I'm comforted by in these situations that when I fail for these temptations, when I fall into these temptations, that these things are not outside the scope of what God is able to accomplish. That even when I fail, God is still working and succeeding. Ultimately, though, we're promised an inheritance bought through Jesus, our brother. God will vindicate you. God will clear your name. He will get you more than you deserve. And we can trust our God for vindication and resist the sin of trying to dethrone him because Jesus resisted it for us. We can resist the sin. We can resist the temptation to do anything necessary to clear our name because we trust that A, God will do it for us and Jesus already resisted this temptation. It's age old and he conquered it for us. And so we stand before God with him as, as having conquered that temptation with him because he faced it for us ultimately. And our name will be cleared. We will get more than we deserve when we stand before God and he looks at us and says, you are my son in whom I'm well pleased. We'll be tempted exactly as Jesus was because Jesus was being tempted exactly as we are. You'll be tempted with consumption, the desire to go after your own satisfaction outside of God, security, the desire to prove God with ridiculous things, and maybe some not so ridiculous things, and status. The desire to make sure that your name is exactly where it's supposed to be in front of people, that they see who you are and they don't think things they're not supposed to. And living your life like that is, is exhausting. At the core of these three is a common impulse though, and that's to cast off God's fatherhood, 
to not trust him, to not trust that Jesus resisting for us was enough for us to resist. And of course, we're going to fall at this. We're going to fail at this. These temptations will face us. And it's not going to be every time that say, no, Jesus did this for me. I'm going to resist because he resisted. And there's grace for those times, of course, because he still has to die for our sins. There's grace for those times. And we will not be perfect in that because we're not Jesus. We're not as spirit-filled as he was. We're, we're not 100% God and 100% human. We don't get to face the devil in perfection the way he did. It's just not going to happen. But we do get to face the devil knowing he's already conquered, knowing he's already failed to resist the one that he needed to, or to tempt the one he needed to tempt. Again, Hebrews 4, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may have mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The passage kind of closes off with Jesus kicking the devil out of here. Just go away. The devil leaves. And Jesus in verses 12 through 17, and we're not going to reread them for time's sake, but he withdraws into Galilee. He goes in Nazareth. All these places we're going to see kind of happening over and over again. He begins his story of ministry. He steps out into ministry. And the whole truth behind that is that the devil brought Jesus into a mountain asking for worship. The devil brought Jesus into a mountain asking for worship, promising to make his name great. When Jesus knew that in the future, another mountain was coming in which he would worship God and his name and our names would be cleared forever based on what he does. based on what he does. And so we get to trust in the actions of Jesus Christ in resisting temptation. We get to trust that we can resist because Jesus resisted. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we do thank you so much just for these truths, Lord, these comforts, Lord. We know we're going to face hard times. We know we're going to face financial crises. We know we're going to face uh, questions of being able to provide. We know we're going to face... Um, times where maybe even our spiritual life is in a lull and we're desiring to test you or try you instead of trust you. Help us not to, Lord. Help us to know that our name is cleared because it's written down with Jesus. Help us to trust that our standing is good before you because Jesus sits with you and stands for us. We thank you that he prays for us, Lord, that he intercedes for us. We thank you that he lived a perfect life for us, that he died for us, but also that he faced a temptation that we will face, temptations that we will go through regularly. And we're also grateful that he's completely understanding of the feelings that we, we have and, and the struggles that we go through. Pray all these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.